11, I, I met you through George. Yes, Lord. That's my, my partner. <laughs> George go all the way back, see? I uh, I remember when George was shot. Oh, yeah, and crippled, okay? And, um... Well, hold on, we're going to talk. I want to save that. Too. Oh, I, yeah. That's a, that's a story that needs to be told. Oh, Because yeah. most people... Well, I'm, 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 I'm glad I get a chance to talk about it because what's happening is it happened so long ago and my with my state of forgetfulness now, I'm bound to leave something out. Right, right. But George Eames, yes, Lord. George, you're the bad boy, huh? Oh, yeah. But anyway, I'm making a deduction. Uh, Robert Judge Eames, right? Yes. Robert Judge. Judge, that's right. Okay. I'll make my introduction and we're going to start the project out because I want you to talk about any and everything you want to talk about. It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I am Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Once again, we got someone here who got so much history to tell, who is history, part of history, civil rights attorney, civil rights activist. It was a part of so much in the Louisiana, in particular Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Today we have you on Count Time, a dear friend and brother, Brother Robert Judge Eames. Welcome to Count Time. Well, thank you. I'm so delighted to be a part of this program and to interact with you, Brother White, because I've known you, seem like I've known you forever. I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to contribute. Oh, no, look, you have so much history to talk about. You've been a part of so much here in the ba- in the Baton Rouge area. Now, now I call you Robert Judge Eames. People say, well, people who don't know you say, well, Robert wouldn't know Judge. Tell them why you, why you are a judge. Well, my mother, Earlene White Eames, she was a white. A maiden white and she had a brother Johnny white and a sister Mary white and uh, other sisters and brothers as well but these I think about particularly Mary and Johnny live with her in the same home that I grew up in where'd you grow up at anyway right here in Baton Rouge Louisiana at 854 South 12th Street oh, in Baton Rouge. The address. Oh, yes. What, I, what, what, year, what, what year were you born in? Well, in 1943. Oh, okay, then. I went to Perkins Road Elementary. I stayed about four or five blocks away from Perkins Road Elementary, then on to McKinley well, Jr. Well, you're not far from where you went to school at right now, where you're living at now. Oh, yes. Uh, South, uh, Perkins Road Elementary was on South 14th Street. Oh, okay, South 14th. Perkins Elementary way, way back there on South 14th? Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, not necessarily directly on 14th, but maybe in between. And I grew up in the hood, as we used to call it. You, the streets, blacks lived either on numbered streets or presidential streets. For example, Washington, Tyler, Alaska. Alaska, yeah, yeah right. They were, either, they were either state streets or presidential streets. 
but the name designation or numbered streets. So that was White's way of kind of categorizing us. Or knew they knew if a person came off of South 12th Street, he was more likely black than white. Although there were a few scattering of white. Maybe a few Italians, maybe. Oh, that's right. Now, just this morning, I was thinking back over my life, where you kind of reminisce. And one of the things about Italians uh, was there was a grocery store on nearly every corner in the ghetto. One of the stores, I recall, Vaccaro's. One of the stores, Grenada's. One of the stores, Salimi. One of the stores, Romano's. Now, what what's interesting is all of those names are Italian names, but also it shows you the control of the different groups in the ghetto, okay? In other words, you could not get past them or you had to name them at the very least. You at least had to go to get some coffee or some milk or some bread. Your 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 food was dependent on the Italians' goodwill. They established themselves in the ghetto. Matter of fact, so everybody, every other, every nationality, have come to this country and built the wealth off of the back of us. That's correct. And that's still going to Arabics oh, oh, or yeah. in our community now. The uh, Vietnamese, right? Chinese. Everybody, so why can't we build our own? Well, I mean, it seems like when we did start things, they burned it down, yes. ran you out of town. Or, well, and of course, the answer to all of those things came with the advent, the growth, and the influence of the Muslims' population. Because the Muslims are the ones who put emphasis on ownership, or what we call black enterprise. Okay, now, one of the persons that I grew up with, and I, the last several days I've kind of, since I knew that we were coming together to talk about some things, I was wondering whether you ever heard of a fellow who later became known as H. Rap Brown. Oh, yes, I do. Okay, now, he grew up in Baton Rouge, born in, in, bread as we used to say he grew up in baton rouge and in south baton rouge particularly murphy bell the lawyer with whom i established my practice with so, so murphy bell gave you your start oh yes okay. and murphy represented rap's daddy so naturally he came to represent rap brown uh rap's daddy's name was brown of course and murphy represented his daddy murphy used to represent the organization of black workers that had a union affiliation. One of the persons in that group that he represented was Rap's father. What was it? You remember his first name? Because Rap. Well, Rap had a brother named Eddie Brown. Yeah. And Rap's name was Hubert. 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 That's correct. Okay. Now, and what happened was, and Rap was, you know, blacks had their own little hierarchy okay. of uh, related to maybe finance, finances. 
Okay. So you had you had a class situation, class of 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 classes, middle class, upper class, blah blah blah. But my point is, one of the educational institutions reflecting class status. So the teachers who professors who taught at Southern, a school was formulated to, to educate their children, and it's called Southern High or Southern Laboratory School, Southern University Laboratory School. The middle school and high school was called Southern High, and one of the persons who was enrolled in Southern High was Hubert Brown, later to be known as H. Rap Brown, when he became a Black Panther and a leader amongst the Black youth in the 1960s. 1960 was a cardinal year during my era. I came through high school in the 1960s and I finished college and law school in the 1960s. Okay. Well, what I'm trying to say is that it was during the elementary and high school years that I actually got to know Brown. So y'all went to school together? Oh, I didn't go to Southern High, oh, okay. but I was a student leader all over the area. Now, what okay. you mean a student leader? All right. I was president of my high school, what high school McKinley High School. McKinley, okay. Yeah. Now, at the same time I was there, when I was at McKinley, Rap was at Southern High. But I still competed against him uh, for the leadership roles that were available to us young people. What, what type of leadership role? What, what they had going on? There was a professor, head of political science at Southern University, whose name was Rodney Higgins, Dr. Rodney Higgins. Dr. Higgins was head of the Department of Political Science at Southern University. I was always interested in what was happening to the black man. Okay. okay. My cousin George Eames was involved with the NAACP. I got involved with the NAACP not only through George but by his encouragement because he, he saw in me the development of a young leader for the black community. It, it, it became the part of the black man, especially who had some leadership qualities and ambitions, to search out, look out amongst the community, black community, and to pinpoint certain people who seem natural to rise up and then assert themselves uh, in a leadership position. And Dr. Higgins' job was to develop you. Right, and so Dr. Higgins, that's exactly what happened. Now, Dr. Higgins established a program at the university level that used to, I'm not even certain, whether it's now continued, he's been deceased for many years now. It would be great if that program was continued, but I'm not sure that it is. I have to. What was, do you remember the name of the program? Yes, Bayou Boy State. 
Oh yeah, by you boys State. Dr. Higgins developed that. Dr. Higgins. I did not know that. I know, and y'all would go to Southern University. No, well, what happened? The qualifications you had to be a, a between your junior and senior year in high school. So when you were in the eleventh grade, passing to twelfth grade, the last year of your high schooling, you became eligible to be selected to go to Boy State. My brother Andrew ahead of me. He was born in 1940. I was born in 43. He's still living today. Okay. Okay. He was like another George Eames. He was there to encourage you. But Andrew was a leader also. I, my life was patterned after his. After your oldest brother, your big brother. My big brother, yeah. So he went to Boy State. And then at Boy State, you get a chance to speak all these things to show you what you are worth personally, you know. So tell, tell her, what, what, what was Boy State like? What was that experience like? Yeah, Bayou Boy State, therefore, was a, a young man. Then they, they, after, after Boy State was in vogue for several years, then they started Bayou Girl State. Oh, you see, so it expanded. Now, my point is, Andrew would kind of empty everything he learned and knew over to me, over into me, get his you, brother. Get, get you ready for what Younger you brother, yeah. And then there's a brother who I'm still in touch with. I've been, I grew up with him all of my life. Andrew, his two brothers, older brothers, uh, were Charles James and Lawrence James were that names they give a name but their nicknames was lawrence was called mutt well there was some comical characters in funny books called mutt and jeff right but these guys were called mutt and jaw okay james charles jack to james boy then they had a younger brother named edward clark james who's still living today but Edward Clark James and I are best buddies and we still communicate. Okay, now, we're getting back to Bayou Boy State. All right, you're doing great. Yep. Charles and Lawrence, Mutt and Joe, were best friends with my, my brother, Andrew. And they were a little older. One of the characteristics of young blacks was they might be a grade or so behind in terms of their actual age so normally you finish high school today at the age of 17 17 18 18 right andrew on the other hand my brother andrew he was very scholarly apparently he was skipped in the early years of school Skipped from, say, like first to second grade and passed a third. So you make three, make three grades in one year. No. Okay, of course they, but they later, kind of d- discouraged that. Oh, because I guess somebody determined that well, it was missing a little too much by being skipped. 
In other words, they wasn't mature enough. Well, yes. And I don't know how true that is. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. So, Andrew, well, it, 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 it definitely applied with the girls. You probably think it was <laughs> the girls, they weren't looking for no youngster. Okay, in other words, if they were, if they were, if they were 14 or 15, and my brother Andrew, he, he this fellow's coming along, he's 12, age 12, but in the same class, able to run in the same circles, you know, but a youngster, right. you know, okay. so, okay, so that's why it didn't make very much sense to encourage, encourage that. Okay, I see okay. that. But anyway, Mutt and Ja, they were from the country too. They were from uh, areas around outside of Baton Rouge, uh, across the river. Oh, like uh, Port Allen, the surrounding areas, Brulee. Yeah, Brulee. Exactly. A lot of the young people come from those areas were not considered, quote unquote, very bright or intellectual. Okay, they were kind of countrified, okay. as they say. Countrified. Yeah, right. But the idea is they might be older also. Their daddy took them out of school and put them to work. They went to work with him. I was just looking at a movie the other day, and the guy was saying, the youngster was saying how that he he didn't have such such, such experience because he went to work with his daddy. In other words... He was expected to work with his dad. They were trying to bring in as much money as possible. Uh, and so he had to work too. Now, but the point of it is Mutt and Jaw, uh, Lawrence and Charles, so so he might spend one or two years in the same classroom. It's the same grade level, okay? It would take him two years of of first, uh, not first, but sixth grade to compare with a fellow from the city who only had one year of, of that grade. Okay. Oh, yeah. But anyway, uh, so their ages, there would be an age difference there. So Andrew was like 13, 14, running with fellows who were 16, 17, and 18. Okay, but a guy might be 18 and in the seventh grade. Well, so what? You know, oh, that's just the way that it was. All right, so anyway, get back to Bayou Boy State. Andrew went there in 1956. Uh, he graduated in 1956. Andrew, my brother. Okay. He graduated with Joe Delpit, my pastor, whose name is uh, Charles Wilson whose brother was Nehemiah Wilson, a great running back from McKinley High, okay. who went on to Kansas City. No, Denver, I'm sorry. I think he played for Denver in NFL. But Andrew was like 13 and in high school. Like 13 in high school? Something like that, yeah, right. He, in other words, he graduated. He, skipped, he, skipped he, was, he was 16 when he graduated. Okay, from high school, 16, and went on to college. 
San Francisco. He went to college in San Francisco? Yes. Because okay. my daddy, he had brothers and sisters who were well-educated themselves. And, of course, you had that state of mind in a lot of blacks that they resented living back here and being not regarded as equals among uh, in the community. That white folks felt they were superior, blah, blah, blah. No matter what kind of education you had. Right, exactly, see. And so what they did, they got a foothold in San Francisco, but also they, they would go west to be able to get good employment where they were recognized, their accomplishments were recognized and sought after. So my daddy's sister, Hattie Lee, became a superintendent of education out in San Francisco. And she attracted her younger sister, Estelle, my daddy's sister, to seek employment out there. Now, so when I came along, and I was born in 43, so at the age of 12, 13, I'm entering into high school and I'm, and, and I'm paying attention to the world, how it's formulating and developing. And I recognize that, oh, well, I want to, I want to advance like they are advancing. And so I familiarized myself with them and they encouraged me and coddled me, so to speak. And put money in my pocket. <laughs> a big difference back then. Oh, yeah. Although I was a hustler now. A lot of, a lot of the youngsters were hustlers. Mama, my mama had 10 children. Ten heads, huh? Yeah, look. My daddy had 13. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Now, what I'm saying is, uh, is that that was life, you know? There's so many things you could learn if you wanted to. Now, you could be ignorant by yourself. <laughs> you know, okay. but the idea is um, I watched my aunts and uncles, what they did to kind of get ahead and stay ahead and how they use education and qual and employment. Estelle was the baby girl. She got shot. A white woman shot her because she wasn't, you know, coming up to her sufficiently. Sufficiently. And the white woman got pissed off with her. And there wasn't worried too much about us then because we didn't have no power downtown. So someone in the white community could abuse a black and pretty much go unnoticed. Right, you see. And I remember Zet, not Estelle, was shot. Okay. And now, now, so what happened was the family back here sent Estelle to live in San Francisco. And she did. And she finished her education out on the West Coast. Well, she got shot in Baton Rouge? 
She got shot in Baton Rouge. Almost died. Okay. Woman, she was working for the lady? I don't, at the moment, remember the factual situation, but I know it was racial, okay? And a white woman shot her. The white woman was talking to her and disrespecting my auntie. And my auntie said, well, you know, you, you need to be more considerate. She was telling the white woman, this is how she, the white woman should act towards her rather than to disregard her as a person and just talk to her any kind of way. So the white woman said, well, I, yeah, I shot her because she cursed me or something. She called me inconsiderate. Well, that shows you how ignorant. She was. The, yeah, exactly. See, all this was in the newspaper. We had the news leader then. And I remember my aunt's picture was on the headlines of the news leader. She was college educated. But she told us that that's most inconsiderate of you to speak to me like that. The woman said she cursed out. Well, yeah, right. That's right. She would have the word inconsiderate with a curse word. <laughs> And, uh, which angered her, and so she responded in a violent fashion. But anyway, did the woman get off shooting her? Oh yeah, that was that was that was nothing uh, done, and that's why the family from the West Coast sent for Estelle, Rosetta, had Lee, those two especially. They had power on the West Coast, so they they sent for Estelle and got her position out there furthered her education in college. I couldn't do any of that back here. So no, uh, no opportunity. Although you, was, you can go to college, get an education and degrees, but you couldn't get any jobs. No. That, that qualify, that you Southern qualify. University was one of the few places where you might get some credit for what you had become. That's how Dr. Higgins became head of the political science department, and then he was permitted to use his uh, background and desire to help the young people develop this program called By Your Boy State. Um, of course, LSU had it too. Oh, okay. They were, were further along. And Higgins was uh, given the opportunity to start it in the black college. Now, now, now what, what made you decide to get into law school? Boy State, my name, which pushed me along. I don't know that judge had any influence on me going into law, but it, it perfectly makes perfect sense that I was wanting to ultimately be who I was. Because your mama named you Robert Judge. judge. Right. Now, what happened, I never did sit with mom, as it happens, you know. There's things we don't think to ask until later in life. But why did mom determine to give me a name that was very meaningful and a, the image of a powerful person, judge? I guess... That's why I ultimately went into law. But I know Boy State was an influence. You see what I'm saying? Now, now what type of law did you want to practice at first? I mean, 
You it was always civil rights law. Oh, you wanted to be a civil rights oh, law. Oh yeah. Well, Murphy and Johnny established that for the for the young black man or the young black period. You know, just just basically, you wanted to be what they were. And that it was it didn't take as it, as we used to say, it didn't take a a, a genius. You know. You just basically wanted to be on the firing line there. You wanted to make a difference. Oh, yes. Indeed. Because the, the way they treated us, the way what they now call racism yeah. or discrimination, whatever they call it, it was so pervasive then. That's and right. And everybody was tired of it. Yes. They're like, we got to do something about this. We can't continue to let you treat us and misuse us. Well, yes. And, and, what, and the other part of it is, then your 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 personal experiences is what you're talking about. You know, it was my aunt who was shot by this white woman. When a person to talk about getting shot these days, one of the second thought they have other than recognize that they've been shot is, I'm gonna I'm gonna get me a lawyer. Now what what I'm saying back then, you understood that there were just all kinds of roadblocks that you you couldn't necessarily get no justice at the seat of justice. But you had to do something to send a message. I don't like this shit. I ain't putting up with this shit. You follow what I'm saying? There was a, a network, so to speak, of people set up to kind of help you and guide you through past this, that situation to keep your eye on the ball. Okay. And that's, that's kind of what I related to and I remember about Estelle. I went to Southern, started in 61, graduated in 65. Okay. And then went to law school in September 65 and then graduated law school in June of 68, see, and I became a lawyer almost immediately, uh, attorney. I still had to take the bar. Okay. See, that's why white folks instituted the requirement to take the bar so they could slow you down. Because the bar didn't exist before that. There you go. So, so you said the bar did not exist. Until until we show up, <laughs> right? <laughs> they had to come up with another way to slow us down. You know, some of us. I made it on first passage. You did? Oh now, yeah. Now, now look, now I, I want you to tell me this is true. So as an attorney, do you know what the term, what the word bar, B A R? Those are acronyms. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, and I, I think I know where you're coming from, but I know. And I, what I was about to say, I had thought about why they talk about passing the bar. You only get, you get, like, pass the bar. Yeah, you know, and, I, and what I'm saying is, and I'm, I'm just saying it, and here I am, 80 years old, getting ready to go off the scene. Now, you're saying that, now, now when you became a lawyer, and you started working with Murphy Bell. Yes. So you, you took on the uh, desegregation case? Oh, yes, right. The East Baton Rouge desegregation case. How, how, was, 
how's that impl implemented and orchestrated? Okay, now those cases, Johnny Jones, Murphy Bell, those cases went on just whenever something in a racial situation came up, the players there, you have the clients who are the um, people who institute the fight. Uh, Raymond Scott, there's a fellow named A.C. Belton from Scotland. Raymond Scott, South Baton Rouge. Uh, Dr. Billups out in the park area. Edoel Billups, Reverend Billups. It was just certain persons you know would be involved in fighting racial discrimination. You expected them to be involved. If they wasn't, <laughs> you'd go get them. I was surrounded in many ways on all sides by different people who had a political orientation or was movement inspired or whatever. So, so did, at the time, did y'all look at it as a movement or it just, uh, it just, just gatherings just, then? Just part of the facts of life. You see what I'm saying? Now, in other words, part of my inspiration that I got from different things are based on these people and how they were affected, affected and drawn into the conflict or whatever. Man, you know, it's like the Lord had everything laid out for us, you know. In other words, you had to fall in somewhere. It wasn't no escaping or, uh, I see y'all later, I'm, you know, I'm taking a break. <laughs> Oh man! But well, it, well, if that happened to you all, and we and a lot of lot of lot of people now thinking because it seems like it's going backwards, uh -huh. but seem the same thing got to happen again. The Lord got to have things in place, and it's got it's gonna have to happen again yes, to move to move our people and community forward. Huh? That's right. The players, the personalities, are going on. Many of them deceased but sometimes they have what you call successes in office successes in interest you were telling us about georgine that y'all was kin yes okay and uh and, and and how and how did how did how did george have an impact on you oh yeah well george george kept me honest i'll put it that way See, George, George was very close to Joe Delpit, and he was very close to Murphy Bell. Murphy and Joe just didn't hit it together. Uh, I thought it at first was class or whatever, different background. But I really found out it was a woman. Yeah. Yeah. So, and George knew all, George knew everything about anything. Okay, in other words, he just basically, my, my son has an expression he's using. 
my son-in-law, Pastor Hardy, uh, who's Ron, married to Robin, Ronald, uh, Ronald, he came by uh, about not quite a month ago just to visit, you know. And we were sitting down. He, he was sitting right where you were. I was sitting right in this chair. And Stephen came. And, and uh, so he said, Steve, how you doing, buddy? What's going on? And what you told him to him, he said, well, I'm just still messy. Now, so Stephen has a little category of discussion, what he called being messy, you know. Messy? Yeah, messy, yeah, okay. you know. And uh, George Eames was kind of like that, you know. George was, <laughs> uh, he would always initiate a discussion. Okay. And, and ultimately, no matter where you started out, you would always end up on some choice things for George to know or find out about people, you know, where he could put it in his, like ammunition in his crawl. And he'd bring up something about uh, Dr. Jemison or, or Joe Delpit or, or even Murphy, you know. And then he might throw something out that might, he know would be interesting, you know. <laughs> Uh, but George, George was like that, you know. Now, but, you, but you was going to tell me about the George Eve getting you involved with the civil rights. And, and oh, yeah. Well, well, I was what you call made to order for George. Made to order. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know what I was made his. Made to order. I had the keys for him to get into any situation I was in where he wanted to know firsthand what was going on? Did I want him to be involved? Get his name in it. Oh, you, oh, you got to have his name in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, because anybody, anytime somebody would hear the name him, the first thing he would ask me, are you related to George? <laughs> you know, and I said, well, by that time I learned this answer, well, actually, all Eames are related. I said, because I don't know any that I haven't found out that I'm that I'm related to, you know, to developing what I wanted to be in life. And the problem is when you want to do those different things, you you have to learn what compromise is, you know. You you can't be going out on a ledge or every issue or whatever. You have to kind of slow things down. I learned that through Murphy. He kind of taught me those things. He said, listen, you cannot be wild and woolly on every issue. You wear yourself out or you'll reach a point where you're really incapable of holding up on a certain issue or whatever. You got to learn how to, as a, some kind of expression, when the, when the hole and when the fold them or something like that. <laughs> And all of that, which is politics, you know, which is uh, how to operate. And and this is what happened with me in a lot of situations. At first, man, I didn't know how to, what compromise was. Well, compromise was like a dirty word. Oh, Lord have mercy. It's like cancer. The only thing you think about what happened to your auntie. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, right. And the idea... Well, what, what I had come to believe is that division and differences of yourself 
have its purpose in life, you know, that um, I want to get along, but, you know, if, um, if it means my ineffectiveness, if it means I've just opened myself up for defeat or whatever, forget it. <laughs> I'd fight to the bitter end. It was just a situation where, no, it's just that uh, I was able to come to the understanding with a person. I said, now I don't necessarily view them as a person I got to be in a fight with or struggle with. You know, that basically maybe we do see some things can be worked out, you know. Yeah. Now you said some things was going on. Were you part of the sit-in in, in Baton Rouge at the Crest Center? Well, what happened, what I had to be careful about, and that's what Murphy and Johnny, that's some of the difficulties that they had to kind of adapt to as well, is to be come uh a part of the problem as opposed to being the lawyer authoring a solution. Okay. Okay. You can't do both. Well, it, because what happened is that the, the lawyer had to go out and, and create his own clients in some of these situations. Folk, everybody wasn't of the mind to fight, okay? Uh, so the lawyer couldn't, he didn't have a problem to represent in some situation. So he had to go out himself and start the fight, initiate a fight, okay? But when you initiate the fight, you kind of confuse things and, and you kind of lose an understanding of prospection about where to go from here to here. You know, what, what, am, what is really my role here? Is my role attorney or? is my role as a fighter. Activist. Right? Activist, yeah, you see. Um, and that's kind of the, one of the quote-unquote contradictions that we have to deal with. But, understandably, it's part of the terrain of, you know, part of the territory. Uh, Sometimes you have to do them both. You have to fight and act and and act activate so to speak. George Eames came to mind. You know, George used to get caught up a lot. You know, in this kind of stuff. But some folks just kind of naturally. He but he seemed to know. It came to him quite naturally what to do. But George wasn't scared to speak truth, 
to power. Well, that's, that, that's true, see. That made a difference. <laughs> Man, I would be with George. George would be talking to the poor folk on the other side. I'd say, look, motherfucker. <laughs> I say, geez, wait a minute. He cuts them out. He didn't yeah, let's keep this thing kind of civil, okay? Yeah, but, you know, George go off in a minute. Oh, Lord. Look, that's why the other folks, the other people call them agitators. Then we started calling them agitators because we wouldn't, we wouldn't use the people there you us go. speaking to there other you folks like that. And, and, you, and you're bringing back a word that the white folks just absolutely wore out agitated, you know, being an agitator. Outside agitated. What do you mean outside? I've been living in Baton Rouge all my life. <laughs> yes, Lord. But they, they brain you with they brain a name on you. That's right. Yes, indeed. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast.